So why do we have so many not just psychosomatic but psychological and psychotic problems, right? And then I weave in the Taoist perspective. The Taoist perspective is always talking about this rising of the energy in the spine. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. That line in the Suan about the common doctor, the middle doctor, and the highest level doctor who's notable for treating the Shen, that's a passage that's always bothered me. It's bothered me because I'm competitive, and I want to be that upper level doctor. I want to be the guy at the top of the game. And so I caught into the idea that the high-level doctor only treats the spirit and does not muddy his hands with busted-up knees, troubles with muscles, sinews, or the myriad of physical complaints that are the reason so many people decide to walk in my door in the first place. I used to think that the right mind space with the proper point of view or belief that if heaven and earth were aligned just so, then physical symptoms, they'd go away. Like, if you were courageous enough to speak up for what you really wanted, then you'd not need to rely on stomach pain to get out of some social encounter, work you hated, or family role that you've outgrown. Or that if you were just more aligned with your higher self, then everything else would fall into place. But the idea of getting the spirit set right and everything would flow more smoothly in the kingdom, I think it misses the mark. What my clinical experience has shown me is that the trick is not to be the kind of doctor that you want to be, but to be the kind of doctor that your patient needs. If they have a physical complaint, then attend to that. If their concern is with emotions or relationships, that is where to turn your attention. I found that meeting my patients where they are, even if I can perceive more about their blind spots than they can, if I can meet them where they are, help them with where they are asking for help, that makes me a more reliable and trustworthy practitioner. The trick, if there is a trick, is to appear as the kind of practitioner who can help them with the problems that they have identified as important. Sure, the ankle pain might be connected with a long-term worry about standing up for what they really want, but that is for them to discover, not for me to decide. I suspect our patients want to know first that we are reliable before they trust us with the tender material, or perhaps they need to have a better functioning physiology before they can wrestle with embedded and fossilized trauma, unhelpful emotional habits, or confusion around self-generated limits. It's not my job to know them better than they know themselves. I suspect the superior doctor, that's the one who can meet a patient where they are and accompany them to where they'd like to go. Meditation is something that's grown in popularity over the past decade or so. What used to be a strange and fringy practice is now commonly accepted, 
even taught to school children. And I suspect you'd be hard pressed to find someone who does not have a meditation app on their phone. Meditation is seen as having a big upside and no downside. But I remember some years back when I took a sabbatical and spent a few months at a Zen center. One of the first things they did was pass out some contact information for a few psychotherapists. We were gently warned that our interior landscape might surprise us in some uncomfortable ways. In this conversation with Leo Locke, we discuss meditation-induced illness, some reasons why meditation can bring disruption into a person's life, and how Chinese medicine can be helpful. We'll be getting into all of this in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. 
I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool. A sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Leo Locke, welcome, I guess I should say, back to geological. Yes, it has been quite a few years. Thank you for having me back. I'm delighted to have you. You were with us way, way back, the pre-plague years. I would say at the very early beginning moments of geological Episode 9. 2017 or 2015? Probably, no, I think it was 2017. Yeah. Episode 9, Voices of Our Medical Ancestors. Oh, wow. That early, huh? That early. <laughs> and now you're at like 400 or something? No, 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 no. This is only like 330-something. I still have ways to go. <laughs> I'm not Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you have me back today? Why do I have you back today? That's a good question. I have you back today because we were chatting at some point about meditation and meditation-induced illness. Oh, okay. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a little mini course out in March. Yes, I think we were talking about that. So I wanted to talk with you about that because, you know, these days meditation... It's like all the rage, like everyone's doing it. Everyone's supposed to do it. And meditation, these days, it's sold as something that's going to fix your damn life. You're going to be more productive. You'll be more attractive to whatever member, what kind of sex you want to be attractive to. You're going to think better. You're going to sleep better. Everything's going to be better if you meditate. Now, do you notice that trend even in the vicinity of where you are? Yes, well, that tells us something, right? Because in the general kind of perception, people would think, oh, it's a West Coast thing or an East Coast thing. No. Well, no, 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 no. Look, man, everyone's got a cell phone. Probably everybody listening to this podcast right now, they have an app. I bet their patients have an app. They got some app they listen to that helps them with, I'm going to use air quotes here, meditation. So worldwide now, it doesn't matter where you're located these days. You can meditate. And in fact, the app will let you meditate with other people. You know, there's apps that when you sit down to meditate, it'll say things like, you're meditating with 5,000 other people at this moment. Have a little map, shows you everybody is. You know, it's like worldwide sangha. I'm outdated. <laughs> That's why we're having the conversation, man. We're going to bring you up to speed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Because I used to sit for quite a number of years consistently with a sangha, with a, you know, a group of people in Berkeley every Saturday for at least four, three to four years. It's nice sitting with other people. 
So that was what I I was more used to was sitting with real people in the real room, not this virtual thing. <laughs> not this virtual thing. Yes. So, so that's kind of where I I was coming from. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was in school. This is before I really had a meditation practice. That came later. I remember one of my teachers talking about. A、uh, clinic that he did with somebody else. They decided to open up a clinic for meditation-induced psychological problems. Wow! Yeah, and this is back in like twenty years ago. Oh, beyond twenty years ago. I've been at this for twenty-five. This is when I was in school. He probably did this in the eighties.、Uh, I guess is is when. So anyway, I remember that and、uh, the conversation that we've had and. I think meditation is a really helpful thing. I think it can be a helpful thing, right? And a lot of people, you know, they'll come in and say, "Well, I can't meditate because I can't turn my mind off," right? Anyone who's meditated for any any length of time, we're like, "Well, yeah, duh." I mean, you're human, okay? That's not the problem. That's kind of part of the process, really. But the thing that that I'm I want to dig into with you today is. What is it about the process of meditation? You know, in some ways, of course, it can be extremely helpful, but it can also it can take people in bad directions. You know, it's not neutral. You know, like acupuncture, where we often hear acupuncture. Yes, acupuncture is neutral; it can help you, but it can't hurt you. That's not true, right? Do acupuncture wrong, you can hurt people, right? So. Like yeah, I'm just going to shut up for a second. I just wanted to lay the table here and let you have at it.、Uh, well, it's kind of、uh, one of the issues that's kind of dear to my heart, or close and dear to my heart, so to speak, right? Because I started meditating in the mid '80s when I was a tween. <laughs> so over the many years, especially since. I started meditating with others in America for the last like twenty five years, both in the Taoist kind of oriented communities and then the Buddhist communities. I've met enough people, number of people who have had really challenging consequences from meditation, especially the ones. Usually, it's the ones that are, who are very dedicated. They really. Believed in it and bought into the whole paradigm or framework, and they diligently practice every day according to the instructions. And then, boom! Something very dramatic happened. And the cases that I've seen amongst you know between friends, spiritual friends, and patients is that a lot of them are quite devastating, very life disrupting people. Stop working. They cannot work anymore. You know they're financially and socially compromised. Some had the good fortune of recovering a couple years later. Some barely hanging on. Some are completely out of the the system, so to speak, of a normal, regular human social life. Right. So I don't say these with any. Intention of being judgmental, or I, I say this with a lot of empathy, 
and sadness because I seen how much they struggled and how devastating, I would say, some of these cases are or were, right? So that's why I created the course that I created so that more of our colleagues can become aware of this type of phenomenon. So it's really interesting to see the response I got on social media, on Facebook, once I released the class, because a group of our colleagues are very familiar with this phenomenon. And they say, yeah. So which group is familiar with this? Who's clued in? I mean, I'm not asking for names. I'm just like, like, what kind of people? Practitioners of Chinese medicine, I'm just speaking of. I couldn't discern any pattern to it. But definitely, like, a portion of it is like, hey, yeah, the gal down the street in the yoga studio I went to was, went crazy, right? Or, uh, yeah, I have seen these before in my own practice. You know, they would say things like that. And then there will be another group of colleagues who will say, wow, I've never heard of anything like that before. I thought meditation was just, you know, one of these benign things. So it's so interesting to observe that and know that this understanding of adverse effect that could follow a period of meditative trainings is not a well-known thing. It's not a widespread thing like diabetes. So it's interesting to note that. And also, I'm also very heartened and encouraged that there's now, I talked about this in my course about this place called the Cheetah House. I don't know if you heard of it. Cheetahhouse.org. You are the second person to mention Cheetah House to me in like the past week. Yeah. So it is affiliated with the university, uh, uh, Brown University's medical school, and was founded by this, I think she's an associate professor at Brown, Dr. Willoughby Brighton. I started following her work many years ago, and she was the first academic, but also a longtime meditator, who said something is wrong here. We have this whole bunch of people who are going, having really bad trips from engaging in meditation. So both as a fellow meditator and as an academic, she started specializing in the research of this phenomenon throughout the modern world. So I would suggest to anybody listening, if you're interested in finding out more, the cheetahhouse.org is really a very, very precious place because she, you know, as an academic and a researcher, she and her team started categorizing and classifying all these problems, I believe, into 59, like seven domains and 59 different groups of symptoms. Wow. And they have counseling services now. They have support groups. They, I think that even if they don't have it already, a dorm where people who got into trouble can go and stay with them. And they have, they have psych, psychotherapists, they have counselors, they have medical doctors on their team. Do they have acupuncturists? Not yet. I bet that would be helpful. Yeah. So definitely a great resource. For, I just want to put it out there first. So in case anybody is in any kind of emergency or they have patients 
and clients who are in a crisis mode, that will be the first place because they know what they're doing. Right throughout the world, they specialize in it, and they have tons of research behind them. So at least somebody who is in trouble would not feel alienated. Or be thought of as somebody who should belong to a mental hospital or something, a psychiatric ward. So they know. And it's a very specific. The ideology. It's 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 not from a organic problem or, I mean, maybe something to do with past trauma. Who knows? But you know, it's come through meditation, and so I suspect there's patterns. And well, like you were saying, they they've identified patterns. So it's it's a good place to go, and they're associated with you know an Ivy League medical school. God, what a world! Fifty years ago, this kind of thing would never nobody would even think of it. Yeah. So so now, we, like you said, meditation has penetrated so many segments and layers of you know North American society. Many of these highly trained academics themselves are meditators. You know the people in Silicon Valley are meditators. A lot of them, right? So it has become like a really socially acceptable. Well, it's not just socially acceptable. It's often seen, I think, as a panacea. Like, oh, you're anxious. Well, you should meditate. Oh, I I need to concentrate better at work. Well, okay, I'll meditate. Meditation, as I see it, very much being sold as. A solution to a problem. Now, I, I've had a meditative practice for a little while. I'm not any kind of expert. I, I, I wouldn't call myself a novice, but I'm I'm certainly no kind of expert. One of the things, at least where my practice is at this point, is is meditation is not about trying to get somewhere. It's not about trying to do something. For me, it's the 21 minutes in the morning where I'm just not arguing with reality for a change. Right, so I'm I'm not trying to make myself different, but I see courses on the internet. I see things on the cell phone. I see things all over the place. Meditate because you know it's a quid pro quo. You'll get this. Yeah, better concentration. You know, less anxiety. And maybe you do, but it's being sold as a something. When it's kind of a nothing, and, and I'm wondering about like how people, how how they get sick from it. Ah, uh, have you seen any in your own clinical practice? Have you encountered any? No, I haven't. I've got a friend from many many years ago, high school, who actually we both started meditating in high school. I think we're, we're doing TM, and he went really into it, and really into it. And he's not been the same since. It's a rough go. He can barely function. You know, really talented, really talented man. So it has been decades, yeah. And he he has still is still struggling. I mean, all throughout these decades, yeah. That doesn't sound like a strange story. It is is there. There are cases like that. And again, you know, I don't see myself as an expert. I'm I'm very much a.、Uh, I don't know what I call myself. I just have a small, stable practice where I sit down and shut the hell up for a while, just because it's helpful. 
I think a lot of people who are challenged and got into trouble did not stay at the level of intensity that you stay at. They usually went much deeper and more intensely. Maybe I mean, like anything you go at, you, you know, in a very strong way, it'll take you places, right? The thing that I'm curious about, Leo, there's often this idea. I mean, the meditation I've done is primarily Zen. There's this idea that this thing we call our self, total construct, right? There is no self, right? There's all kinds of stuff in there or out there, but an actual self, we don't have one. It's kind of a construct. And, and I'm wondering if people, because they're trying to get to like some kind of enlightenment or some kind of different relationship with who they are, and they encounter, I ain't no one. I, I wonder if that's a piece of what sets people off on real path of dissociation, maybe nihilism, a sense of being ungrounded. Yeah, the dissociation is definitely one of the the things identified on the Cheetah's House uh, list of things because a lot of meditators experience that. Okay. Do you want to go in there or not in terms of the non-self because it's a translation problem? All right, let's go. Where does the no-self translation come from into the English language? From the Zen people, no? Maybe in the 60s or 70s when it first... I think so. Yeah. So what was it in Japanese? Is something like the Chinese Wu War because the Japanese got it from the Chinese, right? The Zen people got it from Chan people. So it's something like Wu War. Wu War? Like Wu Wei the Wu? Yeah, yeah. Wu means no, nothing, nothing. There is no such thing. War means me, I, myself. So it, they got it from the Chinese. So Americans or English speakers got it from the Japanese Zen people and the Zen people got it from the Chinese, right? Okay, so Wu Wu, in Chinese, it really does mean there is no such thing as me. There's no myself, no, right? There's no me, I. There's no I, okay? So where did the Chinese got it from? Because there's no such thing as Wu Wu in pre-contact Chinese, ancient Chinese philosophy and culture, right? There's Wu Wei, but definitely there's no Wu Wu. Wu is very much there until they encountered Indian Buddhism, Buddhism from India. So, so that's because you know why I was on that track, on that trail of inquiry, is because when I looked at Chinese medicine and Chinese medical literature, and, you and you, I, I'm sure you share the same thing, is there's a lot of mistranslation over the decades, right? When the receiving culture first encountered certain concept, they translate like five elements. Xing. Right. There's no element in Xing at all. <laughs> right? It's movement, is is phases, and is a dynamic movement of things. But when it first came into the West, it was translated as five elements. And decades later, we still couldn't get away from this five element translation because it has become a practice, it has become a school. You have a community of practitioners. So it's too late to go back. It would create havoc. 
in people's professions and lives and their philosophical leanings. When you try to say no, 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 it's not five elements; it's five phases. People go nuts. Well, and anything that comes into the common parlance, good luck getting it out. Yeah, it's permanently there. There it is, and, and yeah, I think so. So that's a phenomenon. So it's like, oh, there are many things like that in Chinese medicine. I wonder if the same thing happened to Buddhism, as Buddhism jumped from you know the Sanskritic Bali. Forms in India and Nepal, in Central Asia, and they came to China, from China to Japan to Korea, and then it jumped the Pacific and came to America. I wondered, with so many hoops and so many cultural lenses and tunnels that it has to go through, if something happened. Well, this is one of my big questions about Chinese medicine in general. It's come from a. Really different place, a really different time, whole different kinds of cultures. We say we practice Chinese medicine. We're kind of like Zhang Zhongjing and Bianche and all those guys, right? We have a lineage back to them, do we? <laughs> right? I mean, it, it, it it's easy to imagine a connection where it's you know just a ten, you know, very tenuous. Maybe I, I like your idea of going back and looking at well, where did it come from? Where、well, it came from? The Japanese. The Japanese got it from the Chan, right? The Chan. Practitioners got it from India. Now that leaves a question for me. Okay, in Chinese, wu wu. So, did the Chinese have an idea of like no wu, no me, or is that something that I mean, is that like in Taoism? Does that come through in other places? It's better than that. What I found out was bad, <laughs> because at the same time, I was quite interested because of that. You know, I went back and studied a little bit of Bali and Sanskrit and looked at the, the earlier text, right before they became Chinese. They were, you know, like for example, you know that in Mahayana Buddhism, a huge cache of the original text was in some form of Sanskrit. Scholars are called Prakrit, which is a from northern the northern transmission from Nepal. So from Central Asia, that is the northern transmission, and then you have some the southern transmission that went to Sri Lanka, and then got transmitted to Burma, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. You know that whole thing is in the Pali language. So we have the Sanskritic transmission from the north that went to China, and then we have the Pali one that goes to Sri Lanka. And goes to Southeast Asia and creeped in a little bit into southwestern China, like Yunnan, right? So when I looked at these interesting, so I said, okay, well, the Pali Canon is one of the oldest, recognizes the oldest layer of Buddhism. Let let us go find if there is a such thing as no no self, right? But it was there in there because the Buddha talked about. I think there was a. Couple of scriptures or suttas, where people come and ask the Buddha, was there a self or there was a no self? And the Buddha said, "No, we don't talk like that. It's irrelevant to the the path to liberation." So he deliberately say we don't discuss it because it's irrelevant to the path. Okay, wait, hang on a second. It's irrelevant to discuss self. But no, it's relevant to discuss whether there is a self or there is not a self. It is relevant. It is irrelevant to the path 
to be liberated from suffering. Because it's like our focus is on not suffering. This court, this line of questioning does not lead to any further liberation. We do not talk about it. So, what was the exact phrasing that he used? So, in the both the Sanskritic and the Pali、uh, literature, it is anatta or anatman is a negator. So, really, the translation is. Not self or doesn't belong to self. Not there is no self because if there is no self, the Buddha has a separate language for it. Is using two different words. It's very absolutely clear in the original Indic languages that there are the two different concepts. Not self and there is no self are two different sentences. They're worded differently. Now. So I came back to the Chinese, and I looked at all the the earliest layer of translation. It came into China. The earliest scripture came into China around Eastern Han, like first or second century, right? And then more and more came the third, the fourth, the fifth, and those who came in usually were translated first by Central Asian monks. They were not native Chinese, right? They came in, and guess what? I found another version of the not self, and is translated as fei wo. Okay, so so you so you need a little Chinese to get that distinction. Yes, fei wo means it does not belong to me. Not there is no me. Wu wo is there is no such thing as me. But fei wo means this is not mine. So the which corresponds exactly to the Pali because there's always that phrasing that says, "This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. Not there is no such thing as I or me. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself." So we don't identify with that particular thing that's arising as this identity me. Not that there is no me. How can there? There's no me. That's why the Buddha says, "Don't say like that. Don't think like that. You go crazy. I'm gonna stop you from thinking along those lines." Because in the earlier scripture, it's very clear that the Buddha has a very, very ingenious strategies towards questions. Sometimes he will answer it. Sometimes he will answer it with a analogy or rephrasing. Sometimes he will categorically says, "I do not want to engage." Because this line of inquiry and engagement leads nowhere, and you might go crazy. And why are we doing this? Because if it doesn't lead to liberation from suffering, stop right now. So then, <laughs> this is not myself. This is not mine. This is not me. Became feywar in the earlier strata. So don't hold me to that. I didn't really exhaustively look into it. Make it a PhD paper. But I saw enough of Fei Wu to realize the Fei Wu then became so Fei Wu and Wu Wu kind of coexisted, but then Wu Wu won out. And they're similar; they're similar, but they do take you to different places. Yeah, one is saying is a characteristic. I'm not going to label this thing as myself. Versus, there is no such thing as me. 
Do you see that? Yeah, I do see it. Because like no such thing as me, that's... Because if you say that, then who is it that's paying the bills on the mortgage? And let me tell you, if the bills don't get paid on the mortgage, this thing I'm not calling Michael, there's going to be trouble, right? There are consequences. Yeah. So you see, that's why I think, you know, with enough experience seeing mistranslation and how mistranslation translation got propagated, this potential mistranslation has been propagated for nearly probably 1,500 years. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. You know what's interesting about this, Leah? When I think about Feiwa, like something comes up and I recognize it and I can go Feiwa. It's like, oh yeah, that's not me. Like not my circus, not my monkey. Oh yeah, someone said this thing. I could take it on as me, but it's like, oh yeah, no, that's not me. That's someone else's idea of me. Yeah, but it doesn't. We're not saying Michael doesn't exist. So in one Michael exists, in the other one Michael doesn't. Feiwa, Michael exists. Uwa, there is no Michael. Yeah, but they're not in the same, even in the same category, because Wu Wu is a declaration. Fei Wu is a strategy. Oh, okay. Say more about that. Meaning, you can. It's a strategy. You label something and say, "This is not me. I'm not going to be concerned with this. I'm not going to let this trouble me." Versus a declaration and say, "There is no such thing as Michael Max." It's a one is a strategy you employ to liberate you from suffering. Another is a declaration, a philosophical. Some say ontological. I'm not that well versed in these type of big words. Some would say this is an ontological statement or declaration. There is no such thing as truth. There is no such thing as a sky. There is no such thing as an animal. There's no such thing as a dog. Versus this dog is not mine; it's the neighbor's, right? So the Buddha does not in, in the Pali Canon. The Buddha does not encourage that kind of. He says, if you were to go through all of these, there is no such thing as this. There is no such thing as that. It doesn't liberate you from any of the suffering. So stop it. It's useless mentalization. Well, and dangerous. Yeah, you see. So what was? Kind of 
discouraged by the Buddha, according to the earliest scripture, has been taken on as a central sort of uh, tenets or tenets, right? It's the tenets of a interesting religious practice. Now, so so that brings out a lot of questions now, right? So that's why people like us are not very popular. <laughs> <laughs> Because we brought up some really disturbing things, you know. Well, yeah, that kind of digs the foundation out from underneath the whole thing, doesn't it? Yeah. So that's why I, I appreciate people like Tanisaro Biko. You know, he's one of the major three major translators of the Pali Canon into English. And he's he wrote extensively about those kinds of issues and saying, "Well, wait a second. This doesn't sound like what the Buddha taught in the Pali Canon. He has a very specific way of looking at things, and then it seems like it has been misrepresented and misunderstood. And I found some kind of interesting evidence, or you know, trails of." Uh, Pieces of crab breadcrumbs that link to the same thing through the Chinese literature or the translation in Chinese. The earliest translators did not say "wu wu." They say "fei wu." Leo, this kind of shakes my world up a little bit. I mean, all kinds of things that I thought about meditation and and all kinds of things I've thought about. Yes, this idea of you know, there's no self; it's a construct. Self is made up of all these things that are not self. I mean, that's true too. So, like, yeah, it, at the moment, it just leaves me a little rattled having this conversation. We'll keep going. I just want to let you know I'm a little rattled at the moment. Okay, okay. I'm fine with being rattled. By the way, I'm just calling it out. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Thank you for being so honest and uh, acknowledge that. We just want to make sure you're okay. <laughs> Our listeners might be concerned. <laughs> If they're listening to this, somebody managed to get it published. So, so I hope somebody would take up the 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 trail or of inquiry and then get a PhD out of it. You know, I don't have the time to go dig up anymore. <laughs> Because it does not lead to more liberation of suffering <laughs> from suffering. <laughs> so, Leo, that's a very interesting thing for the Buddha just to say that doesn't lead to to the elimination of suffering. Yeah, I I will follow up with sending you the scripture, the suttas. Okay, I'll put it on the show notes page. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a really interesting conversation, right? So we talked a little bit about that kind of a philosophical way. But I also want to talk about some, like really practical, pragmatic, rubber meets the road kind of daily life way. You know, it's like we don't have to refer to the scripture or the philosophical or the theoretical. We can look at the actual practice itself and see where people where people can get into trouble. Right. Let Let's step down a little bit in that. In that, for example, I looked at. Some of these cases that I'm familiar with, and in the cases where I see recovery over the years, in some cases complete recovery, very positive, very powerful recovery, and come back, 
I see a pattern, and the pattern is a lot more engagement in externally oriented, physical kind of practices like Tai Chi, Qigong, running, all kinds of physical movements. Physical sports of any kind, maybe. Yeah, seem to help a lot. Tremendously, right? Where things are hopeless and people are hopeless, they gradually became better by engaging in more and more embodied physical things, right? So I see that pattern because you see that when people are deep into their meditation journey, and if you go to the very dedicated, they usually means isolation. It usually means seclusion. It usually means I'm in the room by myself or with a few others, and I'm looking inward. The gaze is towards that is casted towards the outside world is temporarily suspended, right? It is an inward-looking thing. So it seems it's really interesting to me that the the path of rehabilitation involves looking out. That makes sense, right? Sure. Not just looking out, but being in your body. There's this old Jewish joke about like if there's nobody here, who's got the knee pain, right? If you're doing something physical, there's not a question of something is present because you're running and you're out of breath, or you can feel your body, you feel your blood. It's a sports are very embodying that way. Huh. So then people would ask, there are certain meditations that do body scanning. Isn't that embodying enough? Right. I mean, there are meditations out there which are very popular forms of meditation that involves constantly scanning the body from head to toes, and being being immersed in the sensations. Or, or being becoming mindful of the sensation that makes up that embodiment, and it's precisely that that one of the people I know got into trouble. Oh, that's interesting. Because the gaze is turned inward, and you're not involved in in an inward outward exchange. So I went into a little bit of inquiry in my course. And I postulate. Yeah. So, what's your postulate? I just tossed one out. What's your thought on it? So, I think, as practitioners of Chinese medicine and acupuncture, we have a unique language and unique framework that can help solve this problem. It's actually pretty simple: qi stagnation. Oh my. Okay. Because I went into. This exploration of the eyes, because from my involvement with the meditation community, there are some teachers over the years they they notice that the positioning of the eyes are actually quite important in influencing their meditative states. So then I went into this idea in the course of correlating EDMR. And then the eye connective system. I don't know if you know that in the Neijing, there is this cold description between the brain and the eyes, 
and the things that connects them. And what does the Neijing say? Mu Xi is called Mu Xi, is almost a thing that is completely not known to our modern colleagues, because one it might have been mistranslated. Another thing is nobody is pointing out the connection. Yeah, so Mu is I, but Mu Xi. What's the Xi? The the Xi is is Xi is the things the ropes that in the Si when you know Si is the 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 strands. So it's like a thread. Yeah, it's a thread in the strands. So we have a lot of that kind of Xi in the Neijing, but it has been completely forgotten through history, and people just ignore them. <laughs> but but now, if you looked at it. You know, it makes a lot of sense. There's a, a lot of thready connection between the brain, the eyes, and the occiput. Yes, we could call that the、uh, optic nerve. I quoted some、uh, interesting modern research on the connective tissues in the occiput around those muscles and the the spinal cord. It got actually the connection goes deep into the spinal cord and into the brain. So the you know the dura mater the. You know, and that、uh, the fascial there's a fascial connection from the outside that connects all the way in. So the position of the eyes makes a difference. The position of the eyes, the position of the neck, because of what it's doing with these different fascial planes, and and the bones. This gets into some like osteopathic stuff pretty quickly. Exactly right. So why do we have so many, not just psychosomatic, but psychological and psychotic. Problems, right? And then I weave in the Taoist perspective. The Taoist perspective is always talking about this rising of the energy in the spine through the different guan, the different、uh, gates, all the way up into the yuzhen, which is where the occiput is, and how we have you know teachings of. When the Zhen Qi, when the activated Qi, or in the Indic tradition, the Kundalini, whatever you want to call it, is trying to break through, and it got jammed. It would start jamming, like、uh, you know, in the I think in the the South United States, it's chomping at the bit, right? There's a saying. There's that saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, there's there's an energy that wants to go. But you're being held back. It's like it's like you have your foot on the gas and on the brake. So that is not even a sickness. That is the the path you will go through according to the more alchemical Taoist path. When you're doing things right, that's what's going to happen. That's not even talking about like things went wrong. This is things going right. This is things going right. This is a stage of things going right. And then you will have Chongguan. This. Qi Chongguan is trying to jump the gate, trying to pierce through and pass through gate because there's a surge of enormous of life force that has been activated. And now I say, if we look at med- the meditation halls all across the world, or just in North America, how many people sitting in the meditation hall right now, regardless of what religion or tradition they're in, have perfectly aligned? Spinal column. Oh well, I don't know. Everybody has a phone in their hand these days. That's done tremendous things to our posture. Exactly right. As pra- this is the vantage point we have 
as a practitioner, as a clinician who treats the physical body a lot, most of our patients, ourselves included, don't have perfectly aligned spine, especially around our occiput. Our neck is crooked. Our it's everything is you know. <laughs> so then, using when we have this type of posture, and this type of non—I don't want to call ignorance, but lack of awareness of what the neck is doing, what the occipitals are doing, and what the eyes, the ocular muscles are doing, what the jaws are doing when we meditate. What are the chances that we can get out of this thing without injury? That's more of my wonderment. Because meditation, sitting in meditation, I'm not talking about 20 minutes a day. I'm talking about one hour, two hours, three hours intensives. People go into intensive for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, and some retreats don't even allow you to stretch, right? So. What kind of repetitive injury, repetitive stress injury? So meditation in perform in those ways, prolonged time without awareness of what is going on physically, is actually a repetitive stress injury. It's not different from the hairdressers who uses her hand to clip hair all day long. I've seen meditation teachers who could not come to class because they were completely wiped out. Due to a、uh, lower back pain, lower back pain is a very, very common problem among dedicated meditators, because they're not moving very much, and they sit there for a long time. And how many people actually have herniated disc or potentially herniated disc to begin with, or misalignment in their lumbar spine, you know, and kidney deficiencies, kidney yang deficiencies. So you can see, once we bring in the Chinese perspective, Chinese medical perspective, there's a lot of things going on there that is that most meditators are not aware of. Well, this is interesting. Hearing that there's a first of all that there's a Taoist tradition that parallels what I've heard with the Kundalini. Right, like both traditions have. A perspective on this. They both seen that phenomena. I didn't know that the Taoist had that, so that's new. And and if I heard you correctly, at a certain point as that chi arises, it's going to jam up. That's part of the process. Yeah, because none of us are that clean and that because that's the whole purpose of the yogic practice is to clean it up. The blockages are inherently there as human beings. And so, when it arises to a certain point, certain problems arise. Oh, it's not that you're doing it wrong; you're actually doing it right. And but now you got to be really careful, and you got to do these other things. Exactly, and therefore you see that in the Indic tradition, in the yogic tradition, they have a lot more body movement, body correctional therapeutic stuff, and that part is has been inherited much better in the Tibetan. Buddhism tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, sure they have many of the philosophical learnings. They have the a lot of these rituals, tantras, yantras, whatever. But they also retain a lot of the yogic yogic movements, right? That's part of the tradition of movements and breathing and everything. 
But now, if you erase all of that and you just sit, right? It's like prescribing people only di huang. <laughs> yeah. They only sit, and they're also going through a mental practice of "I'm not here." Yeah, yeah. So you see the potential of problems, right? I, I see the potential when that when that energy arises, and. Does what it's supposed to do, which is start breaking, trying to break through those blockages, and you don't have a you there to somehow stabilize this process. That could go really bad. And then worse, there's something even worse than that. What do these people eat? Oh, they're vegetarians. Yeah, blood deficiency. So qi stagnation coupled with you know yin. So, so now, is this something new? No, in, that's what I just finished with the project with uh, Dr. Salguero, right? He has this, collect, this new anthology coming up. Pierre Salguero at Penn State, he got this grant from a donor and then he has commissioned, it's going to be published, this anthology of meditation-induced sickness from literature from all over Asia. Oh, wow. In pre-modern, mostly pre-modern stuff. So me and another colleague, we are responsible for the Chinese side. So it's an anthology. So the Chinese side, we have seen it before. So we just stayed to the Chinese medical side. So we found these passages from doctors in the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty, you know, who talked about this so-and-so, this monk that came to him and one of these doctors is actually a monk himself, a Zen monk, a Chan monk himself. And another one is a very famous doctor, Zhang Lu from Zhang Shi Yitong in the Ming Dynasty. So it seems like he saw a lot of Taoist practitioners and Buddhist practitioners who got into trouble. And he compared and contrast them, what went wrong and how he treated them. It's phlegm. It is, so it's right up our alley in the sense that if you're herbalist, you know what he's talking about. Here, you know, like yin deficiency, fire flaring up, blood deficiency, qi stagnation, phlegm misting the mind, the heart, you know, things like that, right? Because now, so you think about it, qi deficiency, yin deficiency, blood deficiency, plus vegetarian, that alone is enough to destroy someone. Yeah, that, I mean, as a practitioner, that makes perfect sense to me. It's a perfect storm. There's no escape. <laughs> Once you engage in these practices and you don't have a really powerful Jing foundation, constitution, you don't have a really strong and qi and blood and Jing rich heritage from your parents, in a few years, after a few years, the person is going to start to lose it either from the qi stagnation or the blood deficiency. And they'll start having hallucinations. That's what happened in the most severe cases I've seen. You will start having perceptual disturbances, right? I have heard reports of, oh, I feel like my head is in the sky, but the rest of my body is on the ground. I feel like my right hand is five times larger and longer than my left hand. I mean, it's so scary for people 
even someone like me who is, you know, who's, who have seen this in the literature before, is still disturbing. How is this person going to live his or her daily life? How are they going to interact with their loved ones, their customers, their clients, if they speak like that? They're not. I mean, not for long. Yeah. So that breaks my heart. Really, that's the part that really gets to me. Is people innocently, so to speak, you know, they get engaged in a practice. It's like, how did I end up like this? Halfway to the madhouse. I've been to the psychiatric ward three times now. I didn't sign up for this. No, no, we signed up for enlightenment. I think people sign up for enlightenment a lot of times. And that, and this brings up another piece. Let me just toss this in. So this idea of enlightenment, whatever that is. Because it's, it, it seems to me, look, I've, I've had moments, I think we've all had moments, where there is that sense of at oneness with like everything. You're like, oh, I'm just at one with things. I'm not arguing with reality. I'm a part of this. I'm like both a part of and a, but there's a small part that's a part from. I'm like my own unique thing and connected. I think we've all had those moments. They're blissful and they're glorious and they're wordless. It's where poetry and music, great art, I think it all comes from there. I think we've all had glimpses of that. And I know in my life, and I think I'm not alone, for a period of time I thought, man, if I just did the right things and I could be in that state more of the time, maybe all the time, because I'm greedy, so I'd like to be in it all the time then, you know, that'd be great. Enlightenment would be a great thing. However, those states also, while they're gloriously connective, it's really hard to drive a car. It's really hard to, like, pay attention to the clock so you know it's time to treat your patient, let alone listen to your patient. So I wonder about that aspect, I'm going to call it of desire, of looking for enlightenment of looking for connection, looking for, you know, in a way being bigger than who you think you are. Does that also play into this issue? So you were talking about enlightenment in the Buddhist sense, because that's a Buddhist terminology, right? I'm just lightly framing it, like peak experiences. I'm going to call it a peak experience. I'm not, look, I'm not a scholar and I'm using language in a very loose way here. So I, I appreciate you reining me in. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. Everybody was looking for a little enlightenment. Window pane would help you for a few hours. <laughs> okay. So this is in very interesting now. So I want to go back to the earlier approach that I was talking about. Remember Wu Wu with a no self? Yeah. So again, when I saw uh, enlightenment, then I say, where does this come from? Enlightenment definitely is in the English language. I think it came from the enlightenment period in Christian movement or something. There was this revival and then there's the new enlightenment movement. So, so that, the word enlightenment, right? The enlightenment is where the scientific method came from. The enlightenment is where a lot of the ideas, you know, like the Declaration of Independence was written by men who lived through the period of, you know, they call the Enlightenment. 
So they're not talking about certain type of meditative, contemplative peak experience, right? I don't think so. No, they're talking about a, a realization of how the world works and a perspective of looking at the world. Again, the scientific method, amazing tool for parsing reality. We didn't have that before, right? So that, quote, enlightenment time in Europe gave us some mental tools for making sense of how things work, right? You could have an idea. Well, having ideas fine, but does it carry water? How do you know if it carries water? I'm going to come up with an idea. I'll make a hypothesis, right? And then I'll test it. Amazing mental tools came out of that moment in time. Yes. So when did this word enlightenment got associated with these kind of oneness and contemplative? I think it's the 60s and 70s. I think it was kind of the... Hippie time, you know, a lot of psychedelics were happening at that point. People were experimenting and getting into Buddhism. It became a thing. I, I suspect the beat poets might have had something to, to do with it. So what is the antecedent of that idea in East Asia? I don't know. So th that's, again, you, you see where I'm going with this? Is the with the non-self and no-self? It probably has to come from somewhere, again, from the Japanese, from the Zen, probably from Satori, the word Satori, which again has a precedent antecedent in Chinese. Which is? Wu. We're back to Wu. Uh-huh. Wu, not Wu, but Wu. Yeah, Wu meaning the, there's the heart radical, and then uh, Wu, which is like a Wu. Wu, wu means uh, like an epiphany. A moment of epiphany, right? So these peak experiences were definitely described in a particular line of trans Buddhist transmission. Let's put it that way, okay? Because remember, what came from Zen came from Chan, and Chan is only one of the many schools in Chinese Buddhism, and all of those were all, you know, a derivative or expansion from the original Indic schools, from India. So there's a long river of innovations and variations from there. So what was the original teaching? Right? Were the non-Chan, non-Zen people that concerned with the moment of epiphany, enlightenment? Not really. Because if you look at the Pali, for example, if we just ditch that whole northern transmission for a moment, just let it aside, look at the Pali canon. That's not even the goal of the practice. That's, so uh, a Theravadan, like a Pali canon guy, like Chanisro Bhikkhu, will look at all this whole thing. It's like, that doesn't even look like Buddhism. It doesn't sound like at all of what the Buddha taught. <laughs> what the hell is this thing? What is this enlightenment you're talking about? There's no such thing in the Pali Canon. Do you know that? I, I went looking. I went looking in the original Pali, and I couldn't find it. <laughs> well, isn't, isn't there that idea of uh, nirvana? Ah, okay. No, not at all. That's not how nirvana or dimbana was defined. I found the formula. The Indians, you know. So that's another thing that folks, our listeners, uh, I hope to convey is that the Chinese are a very different breed than the Indians. In that sense that the Indians, since the beginning of time, are very analytical people. 
They're more like the Europeans. That's why the language is called Indo-Europeans. They came from the same branch. Very analytical. The Chinese, on the other hand, are very poetic. They can be very good in math, but they're essentially a kind of a poetic, touchy-feely kind of people. The ancient Chinese. They like impressionistic things. Look at the paintings. It's all impressionistic. We don't draw out the mountains with just a splash of ink. That's the mountain. So, one of the the great masters, Na、uh, Huaijin, would say, "We Chinese hide our science in our poetry. We hide our science in our poetry. That's why Chan and Zen appeared in China and not in India, because Chan is a great simplification and impressionistic take of the Indian tradition. The Chinese love it. That's their flavor." If you go to India, they have the so many traditions of anal- analysis of the mind elements. This moment went by this how many seconds, and this occur, and this occur. It's all mathematical. That wouldn't fly much in China. In recent years, the Saam acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Saam approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six qi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. That's so interesting because when I think of China today, I, I I don't think of it that way. But we're talking about ancient China, or maybe there's just stuff that I miss about Chinese culture. Just goes right over my head. Well, fundamentally, Chinese people like simplicity, abstraction. So don't say it because if you look at the original Indian scripture, it's all repetitive because it's all originally it was orally transmitted. So they have this. You look at the ancient so the Vedas, everything is recited. So they have a particular adopt a particular form of literature to facilitate that memorization. So there are five forms of this thing. Form number one: this thing is called this thing, and this thing is not that thing. Form number two: this thing is this thing. It they go on forever and ever and ever. The Chinese look at this like, Dido. <laughs> you would not find Dido in Indian scripture. It's if there are twenty-five things, they're going to repeat the same thing. 
da 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 one da 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 two. It's a song to them. It's a it's a you know it's it's a verse to them. So they recite them. Yes. It's a recitation. Well, and the repetition means less chance for error to creep in. Yeah. Right. So this is the most shocking, or not shocking, but just interesting thing I found by studying the both traditions. The Buddhism, in terms of how it is recorded and translated in Chinese, versus how it is in Pali. So, if you look at the Pali scripture and the suttas, it's very clear. It was all laid down axiomatically. I'm going to send you a sutta, a very, very short sutta, and there it like because I go and hunting, right? It's like what is dimbana? Give me the. Thing before nibbana, and I go. I reverse engineer it. Sure enough, it's very clearly stated in the Pali Suttas, and I'm sure we can find it in the corresponding Chinese translation as well. What precedes nibbana is a vimutti. A vimutti is a liberation. I think in Sanskrit it corresponds to moksha, a liberation, a, a being right? vimutti. In, in in Chinese we call it jie tuo, jie tuo. Okay, jie tuo is the ultimate goal, not this u or satori. Liberation is the goal. Liberation is the goal because nibbana satori is just a natural consequence of liberation. It's a glimpses of you finally you know what how to do it. <laughs> It's baby steps. It's baby. We we say u ho fang xiu. It's like after the u, after the satori, then only you know how to proceed with the rest of the spiritual path. It's the glimpses. It's like finally I know what is correct and not correct. I know where San Francisco is now. It's in the west, not in the east. That's it. But modern North American Western people take that that glimpse, that vista. As the the thing, whereas in the East Asian tradition, Asian tradition, that's finally you know where how to proceed, how to proceed. Okay, that's fascinating. Okay, now you know how to proceed. Okay, great kids, now you know how to bake that cake. Yeah, so now start baking. Let's play with it. So get baking, get cooking. Yeah, it, you gotta learn how to measure the flour. You gotta know. The beginning of the journey, not the end of the journey. The beginning. Okay, this is great, and I think this brings in another whole piece from our Western culture, which is it's salvational in nature. That's all. I think that's a whole other piece. It's it's not about hey, I learned how to bake the cake. Now I can actually be a zoran. Now since I became zoran, right? I know how to be a upright human. We have this salvational thing, like. You're good, and you're going to heaven, where everything endlessly is wonderful, always at one. We're very, we're very salvational that way. We're we're looking to get that. You know, we're not looking for the liberation. We're looking for the that end state. You know, it's been promised to us through our religions. Because heaven is not a、uh, the final destination. Not even the preferred destiny, final destination in Buddhism. Again, in 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 our Western religions, that's the final stop. Ah,、uh, yeah, but not in modern Buddhism. No, there's a lot of traps in heaven. There's a lot of traps in heaven. 
So would you be interested in knowing what precedes precedes vimutti, the liberation? So the Buddha says there are two kinds of vimutti that has to happen in tandem for the final liberation of dibbana to happen. One is jetto vimutti. Another one is panya vimutti. Here comes the translation problem again. Jetto vimutti. Let's talk about panya vimutti. Easier to understand. Panya vimutti means liberation through wisdom. Pratnya, pratnya, panya becomes panruo. You know, have you heard of panruo in Chinese? It's really the Mandarin pronunciation of the older. Panya is really Panya. They literally transliterate it as Panya, right? Or transcribe it, not transliterate. Transcribe, right? Panruo is Panya. Panya means wisdom. That's where a lot of the Buddhist things are concentrated these days. Or the understanding of Buddha, or the Buddhist understanding, is that you see things clearly. You see things as they are. You have a perceptual clarity and maturity. In seeing events and things that arise in your mind and your body as this and that, it is not that and this, so that you become liberated with this chain reaction, chain consequences of how you always do things, and thus leads to suffering. Is seeing clearly, the ability to see things clearly. So you can avoid the troubles. Yeah. So that's panya vimutti, right? We talk about. Uh, the three characteristics of non-self, anatta, fei wu, what's not mine, yeah, and wu chang, which is、uh, what is that? Not regular, not constant, impermanent. Anatta, the wu chang, the impermanence, and then there is the suffering, right? So with these kind of ideas of things come and arise and pass away, things. Are not you know all factors in life are not constant. When they're there, they become one thing, and when one of them dissolve, you don't get that thing anymore. So don't get attached to it. You know, attachment is suffering, right? In the eight sufferings, the Buddha says, you come together with somebody you dislike. That's suffering, right? You are you're torn asunder from the people you love. That's also. Suffering, right? Your perceptual things, like seeing through that. So that's panya vimutti in the sense people can just me and you talking. People can understand through their mind, through their reasoning, that is the case and that is the truth. Now the problem is, can we sustain that and maintain that type of thing all the time? Can we stabilize it? Stabilize it all throughout our. Waking and sleeping moments. Is it constant? So there's the the thing. Having a mental or philosophical understanding of things does not mean emotionally and habitually and behaviorally we can maintain that same type of clear perception. Because I can say, Michael, you're wonderful and all that, and all of a sudden you start yelling at me. I know you're a perfect human being, blah 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 blah. But when you start yelling at me, can I stay calm? Or, or the neighbors, or somebody, the delivery guy, just drop that package really loud and smash it against the door. In that moment, do we get like, "Damn you!" 
right? So we have a lot of stories like that in Chinese Buddhism, where some people would come out and have satori and declare, "Oh, I knew this," blah 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 blah, and then he ran to his friend to tell him that he has achieved this enlightenment, and his friend just wrote bullshit on the. Right, and then he got so mad, and he, you know, he returned and he yelled at the guy, "How? What the hell do you know?" It's like I know because just two words of bullshit, you came right back at me, right? So that's the difference between the mental, intellectual understanding, and the behavioral response. I would even go so far as to call it an embodied response. Exactly the embodied response, and how constant can we embody that from moment to moment? And that part belongs to jetto vimoti. In Chinese, we call it xin jie tuo, because panya vimoti is panya vimoti is we call it zhi jie tuo, 智慧的智，智解脱 ，wisdom. 智 yeah, 智 wisdom. Yep. But xin jie tuo is easy to translate into Chinese, but how would you translate into English? Most modern translators translate it as mind liberation. Oh, oh, because both the Indians and the Chinese, we do not divide and differentiate the heart and the mind. That clearly in in modern English, there's no such thing, right? Even in the Qi Qing, in the Seven Emotions, it's not purely emotion. Si is not an emotion. Rumination is not an emotion, according to modern English. Rumination is a mental activity, but nonetheless, Chinese, ancient Chinese, kind of categorize it as a qing. So Indian, the same way, there is a different kind of divisions between what is in the heart and in the mind in the modern English speakers, but not so. It's all mixed up and nebulous in the Indic and Chinese cultural traditions. The Chinese wouldn't have problem translating it. Xin. Is both involves both the emotional and the mind, and the intermix of which. But in English translation, is translated mostly as mind liberation. Mind liberation. So then, what's the difference between Cetto Vimutti and Panya Vimutti? There's no difference. But if you follow the scripture back, what is Cetto Vimutti? Is the ability to stabilize the The mind and the emotion into these different states of absorption and concentration. So you can have the knowledge on one hand; it's helpful in a way, not very stable, very volatile. Stabilize it in your emotions. Oh, now that's different. Yes, and in the beginning is the stabilization of oh, if it happens once a day, I can deal with it. But if it happens a second time, I'm going to start to you know boil, right? And the progress is oh, in a year's time, in two years' time, maybe if it happens even five times a day, I can stabilize it. I can stabilize it every five minutes, every hour to half of the day. I can be there, and then twenty-four hours of the day, I can be that way. That is progress, and that's how the traditional model works. That's the difference. I I don't know if you heard of the first fruit, second fruit, third fruit, and the fourth fruit, because, right? I mean, it's so 
I'm sorry if I start using the word again, heartbreaking, because I seem to use that word a lot. Which is that is such a fundamental framework, conceptual framework of all of the Buddhist traditions. Everybody knows that in East Asia, that is how you make progress. First, you practice, and then you attain your first fruition. And 出国 and 二国三国 and then to arahat 四国 arahat arahat, right? So that is the progress we make. In every stage, there is a criteria. There is some kind of requirements, some kind of yardstick and parameters you can use. To verify, your teacher can use that, and you can use that to verify. Say,、like、how far on the path am I? So that problem, though, I think is kind of obscured once we go into a certain Chan or Zen stuff because they prize sudden enlightenment or sudden awakening. But those are reserved for the stars, the star practitioners. Not the regular folks like you and I. We need yardstick and progress. Us regular folk, it's step by step, bit by bit, stabilize. Oh yeah, that UPS guy that always leaves the package in the wrong place. That stupid, you know. And at certain points, like oh yeah, UPS was there. The package is、uh, over by the tree, like usual. That would be a step, right? So that's why in Tibetan Buddhism there was this revival. Of you know the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama belongs to the Yellow Sect, but the founder of the Yellow Sect was a, a master who saw that in I think it's in was five hundred years ago he saw the decline in the practice and understanding of Buddhism in Tibet. Too much of this sudden enlightenment thing, this lineage thing, with very little. Objective understanding, so he formed the Yellow Sect School, right? You have all these degreed programs that you have to spend five years just learning the theory, the intellectual foundation, and then you debate and you debate and you debate. Only when you have you graduated with this really strong foundation, they sent you to the upper school, where you study specialized. Things like mantras or singing, or you you do the mandalas. You you find a rinpoche, you found a master that specialized in a particular path of practicing. But before that, everybody has to go to primary school, and you have to graduate. Else, you can go astray very very quickly. It's one of those things I'm thinking of. Say young people that make it big as a rock star, are in your twenties, and now you've got all kinds of money and access to you know everything, and you know it's very easy to totally explode yourself, right? A lot of those folks never make it, right? They die because it's just it's too much, can't handle it. Like people who want the the lottery. Well, yeah, that that kind of thing too. Yeah, you've got to prepare yourself for you know that higher voltage, so to speak. Exactly, exactly, right. So you see that that time of foundational knowledge is so much missing in the modern West. 
And so we would miss, I suspect, the, these older traditions, you know, like the, the yellow sect you were talking about, Tibetan Buddhism. They could recognize if somebody was off the path. Like, oh, you're heading in a direction. We know where that goes. That's not, that's not helpful. We're going to direct you back on the path. We don't have those kind of guardrails here in the West so much. I think it's because the transmission is only in its infancy. Right? Because if you think about it, we have to be fair here. The transmission of Buddhism, for example, or Taoism, for that matter, to the West is how many years old? Oh, my God. It's just like blink of an eye. Like 50 years, maybe? 60? Maybe a little longer, but still, it, not that long. Not more than 100. Not more than 100. Maybe more in Europe than here, but, but still, it... Now, think about it, how long ago was the Indic Buddhism came into China? Almost 2,000 years ago. So the reason we can be of this clarity, speaking from the Chinese point of view, is because 1,800 years have passed. 1,800 years have passed. Many, many generations of practitioners have fallen and died for it. So we have the track record. We have the record to show. Just like in Chinese medicine, same idea. Yeah, yeah there's an accumulated experience. Yeah, not that we're more intelligent or more talented or not. It's just time. <laughs> You've been exposed to it. You know, it's like when a population comes in contact with a new virus that they haven't had before. It's devastating. Yeah, and you know... You spend some time in Asia. You know about these wuxia uh, pian, right? These martial art movies, like Jing Yong, you know, that, that kind of shen diao xia lü, you know. In, in, in the Chinese popular imagination and mind, we're very familiar with that type of pre-modern martial art novels, movies, drama. And in all of those, you will see that people who practice martial art, people who practice any kind of contemplative thing can go wrong with their practice and needed the help from the master or their friends to help them get the hell out of their trouble spot. Else the chi went this way and went into the heart and the person is going to die in five days unless a master came by and hit him on a particular acupuncture point and revived him or reversed the so you see, this thing is so ingrained in our culture and in popular imagination that is everybody knows this thing. Even if they're not learned, then have not read a single thing in their life, just from watching TV. Because it's in the popular culture. People know it. Everybody knows. If they don't understand it, they know somebody can go terribly wrong if they practice the wrong way. And you need somebody who is more clear-eyed and experienced to get you out of trouble. My sister knows it. My mom knows it. And everybody who has watched TV or drama knows it. If you're in that culture. But it's completely absent, right? This idea is completely absent in the Western world. So given that, and given that we see people as practitioners... Are there some, I'm going to call them early warning signs that us as practitioners of Chinese medicine, 
might be able to see with our patients who maybe have a meditative practice. And could we pick up on this kind of stuff? Or is this something really more for experienced meditation teachers to be able to call out? Is there, I, I guess the question I've got is, can we help? Are there things that we can look for that would tip us off to, ooh, maybe I've got a patient who's not on a helpful path? To be honest, unfortunately, I think it's very hard to predict that kind of psychotic breaks in people. Because on the outside, they can look very, they're on the path. And they're vegetarian, and they meditate every day. And I, I mean, they might on paper look really good. And maybe they're doing well. Yeah. To be honest, it's almost impossible to tell, to predict the break, when the break can happen. But I think there are things that we can help post. Yeah, Cheetah House. Yeah, Cheetah House, and then post, like people, we can help them some with acupuncture to relieve the chi stagnation in the body. I think that's where acupuncture is very helpful. And I have a few suggestions in my class for that. And also the rehabilitation like Qigong practice, Daoyin, Tui Na, anything that help ground the person in this body. Go out and play football? Mm-hmm. And engage socially. Engage socially, play rugby, and eat cheeseburgers. Exactly, because what comes with all these inward contraction is for sure the severance of social connections, almost guaranteed. You cannot go inward and outward at the same time. One, when one goes intensely inward, one becomes isolated. Yep. Okay. Wow. But I want to leave the last note on sort of uh, how do you prevent that from happening? How do we prevent that from happening is to have the, the best and strongest physical body possible and be socially engaged in all spheres of our lives and use meditation only for judiciously and medicinally. Okay. And I'm going to suggest, let me see if, I, if I'm tracking here. When we say socially engaged, you mean in person, in the flesh, body to body, breathing the same air. You're not talking about like, oh, I'm engaged on my social media feed. You're not talking about that, are you? No, no, no. I'm talking about having a physical life. Connected. Connected, you know, you go to a sangha, you go to a meditative place where there are other people with you in in physical bodies, right? So that is one of the hardest things to do is because a lot, some people actually, without them knowing or unconsciously, use meditation as a way to evade and run away from their social challenges. That's unfortunately one of the things that I've observed. So a lot of people who are prone to this type of problems have this characteristic. I'm not saying it judgmentally. I'm guilty of that myself. Yeah, no, what I, what I hear you saying is there are certain traits to watch for. You, you could be judgmental about it if you want, but we're talking as practitioners. I mean, we need good judgment to do our work. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, those I would say the predictors, the, the social issues, social issues 
trying to, somebody trying to solve a social problem, a social challenge, with meditation. And they're actually avoiding rather than engaging. Yeah, which is a really challenging thing because it's so much easier to use the apps to be cloistered and withdrawn into our little space rather than because our modern world is so not conducive to social engagement, more and more so because you can. Isolate yourself pretty easily, and like in China, they say you don't have to leave your room. You just order everything on the app. Yeah, I know it's really helpful. Thank you, COVID. We learned to do that. That is certainly a habit to break. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I really noticed. I'm not saying this to put people down, but that's what I observe. Socially challenged people sometimes not. And the other thing is. Why is it that it's making it so hard to predict? Is because sometimes the issues that we have, the challenges that we have, interpersonal challenges that we have, remains hidden. Sometimes is obscured. Sometimes is camouflaged really well by the person themselves. It is in introspection that some of these trauma get revealed and brought up to consciousness, conscious awareness. That's where the challenge is, because even to the person themselves, that thing, that trouble, is not obvious. Somebody can hide that or camouflage that very, very well in their day to day, but the moment you dip inside, we don't know what this person has been through: any kind of physical, social, sexual abuse this person has endured in their earlier years. But once they dip inside, they peel the Pandora box is open, and you peered into it, and boom, the demons come out. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a question about Kong, because that's. But I don't want to go into it now, because look, we're already. I mean, if people are still with us, good for them, because this is this has been a long conversation. We might need to like just go Joe Rogan on this in the future and get some cigars and whiskey and. Uh, Talk for three hours, but I think we probably should wind it down for now. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me again. Oh, thank you. And your perspective on this is really—it's a bit illuminating, I would say. And I and I certainly appreciate the the look through the translation errors and uh, how misconceptions can uh, multiply. So, really helpful stuff. I'll look forward to us going over Kong at some point in the future. Okay. That'd be fun. Yeah, I'll have to do some homework. <laughs> All right. All right, Leo. Until next time, then. Thank you. I appreciate Leo's capacity to dig into language and classical texts. That, along with his vivid curiosity and to see how ideas of the past have trickled down to us here in the present. That very common idea of meditation to be a vehicle to get us to a place of no self, with the idea that by eliminating the ego, nirvana awaits. It's not quite right, and in some ways, indeed, it's dangerous. His teasing apart of uwa, no self, from feiwa, 
not part of self. Mm. That for me was a powerful distinction. It might be easier to grasp this subtle but significant difference in Chinese, but I think it's worth investigating and considering that cultivating the capacity to recognize what is not part of self is quite different from imagining that there is no self. As the old Jewish joke about rheumatism goes, if there is no self, then who's having this knee pain? And then there's Ramdas, another nice Jewish boy, saying, you need to have an ego before you can not have one. Except, I don't think he was joking. Having the capacity to manage everyday life is a prerequisite for more heavenly and inner realms. This conversation with Leo, it's got me thinking not so much about not having a self, but what is not part of the self that I imagine I am. And what's more, it has me wondering what kinds of trouble we might be creating in our culture with the intense cultivation, attachment, and political capital that goes into having a particular identity in today's world. I'd love to get your thoughts, which you can share with me by visiting the Geological website and click on the Engage button. I'd love to get your thoughts on today's conversation and what it means to you, along with any follow-up questions that you might have for Leo. Again, look for the Engage button over on the website. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.